This is the Bushwick Variety Show. And I'm Alec the Third. Greetings, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. This episode features Courtney McClellan. We just did a six shooter together. We played uh, cowboys and cowgirls together. And uh, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, Hopefully we're going to work on another project. We'll see what happens with that. But if not, you know, we're going to work on something else. That's going to happen at some point. I am calling it in from the universe. I am saying it. And so shall it be universe willing. Uh, But this conversation was really great. This is what I needed today. Um, You might not be able to tell this, but I got a new computer. Um, I think the last last episode was recorded on the new computer. But yeah, I'm still like learning out the microphone. Um, But it's way it's way better. You know, my other one was dying on the vine. This one is trying and uh, surviving. But, you know, it's, it's a brand new computer. So I'm just super grateful for that. Um, but now, you know, there's just small, small adjustments because now I have the up-to-date software, but I think I have an out-of-date microphone interface. So I'm using an adapter. So if it sounds weird, this is some, this is some nerdy talk I'm going through right now. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. Also, finally, after what, three years, I'm going to one day a week podcast Mondays, every Monday, um, and then sometimes I'll throw in extra ones just with all the different things, uh, trying to do two a week right now just did not make sense. And it wasn't, wasn't working out. So I'm finally just, yeah, giving in to that, that once a week is plenty for now. So you can catch me here consistently every Monday with new episodes In today's episode, I'm super excited to share with you. This is Courtney McClellan. We just did Six Shooter together. Um, You can hear the radio excerpt version of this play. This is an ongoing piece that's in development. Uh, We both played cowboy people um, in the Wild West, and it's exploring gun violence in America through the Western, through the trope of the Western. Uh, True pleasure to do that. You can check out the last episode. um, Has the people from the Bowman who we collaborated with on making this. You can check out the earlier episode with Emily White. Um, and hopefully I'll be, I'll be sharing six shooter on this podcast soon as well. But Courtney was one of those people who like a lot of people in the group, I just really hit it off with really found a fellow kindred spirit, theater spirit, uh, and just artist, really refreshing growth mindset, just great outlook on the world and I look forward to doing more with her in the future and I look forward to sharing this conversation with you so without further ado this is the brilliant thoughtful kind soul and theater practitioner Courtney McClellan let's have a conversation I'm gonna um grab some coffee real quick um and yeah yeah. Take your time. <laughs> all right, all right. So how are you doing? Better now that I'm also caffeinated. There we go. <laughs> so, um, so I guess first of all, how's 2021 
treating you so far? <laughs> it's been a whirlwind. <laughs> oh, it's uh, treating me like the ugly stepchild, you know. Um, but I have to say, you know, I think a lot of people are wandering around just trying to make the best lemonade that they possibly can. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing too. But there's been a lot of great lemonade. We squeezed a lot of juice out of this year so far. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, actually. And I have to, I really have to be grateful. Good, good. Uh, and so what I actually wanted to ask before that, but that's, you know, that's an important thing is just how are you doing? Um, so we met, of course, on Six Shooter, and I remember some of your multi-hyphenate-ness, um, but can you remind me kind of uh, what you do, what you love to do, what you want to do? Of course. Um, so I'm Courtney McClellan, um, and <laughs> that means a lot of things to a lot of different people um, in my life, and it has for a long time, because I tend to think of myself um, kind of as an as having an entrepreneurial spirit, I always have. I've, I've, my interests have always been super eclectic. I just have the privilege to be able to turn my passions into my my work at this point, and um, and that comprises a lot too. Uh, so at at my core, I have a passion for people. I really love people. I'm an extrovert's extrovert. And, uh, and that can be that can be weird for some folks because I know a lot of people, you know, recharge, get their energy from going away and being by themselves and being really introspective. My, I'm quite the opposite and I'm tired. And at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I gotta recharge. Where are the people? Mm. Um, and so my work is a lot about, it has a lot to do with connecting with people of all ages. And I do that through theater. I consider myself an applied theater practitioner. And the work that I currently do is with the, the City University of New York's um, or CUNY's uh, creative arts team. And it's a theater in, in education organization, an applied theater organization where we are using theater as a teaching tool. And um, oftentimes it looks like going into um, schools and it looks like going into um, to adult learning centers or um, even prisons sometimes uh, and working with teachers and educators and, um, and young people and older folks on um, how they can make change using through, through theater, through the practice of the theater arts. Um, and it's incredibly gratifying because it's a mix of kind of two worlds that have always circled around me, which is theater and education. Um, and I currently work with early learners at the creative arts team. So I get the nice. purpose of bringing theater into um, early learning classrooms across the New York City area. And um, on the side of that, I'm also in a master's program that is teaching me to apply theater in different ways beyond just um, with early learners. So I get to work with adults in that program too. Nice. Um, where are you doing that at? That's also through CUNY. It's the School of Professional Studies. They have a master's in applied theater program. It is unique. There are not many like it in the nation. There are theater arts administration programs. There um, are performance studies programs all over. Um, but applied theater is a fairly new field to the United States. It's, it's much, you know, much more prevalent over in the UK and even in Asia. And so a lot of our practices and um, 
our, uh, our influencers, our borrowed shared between that work, but so much of it actually originated or the concepts behind the pedagogy of it originated in, um, in South America, in Brazil with the work that Paulo Freire did um, with, with the Brazilian peasantry um, after, after the war, after the coup, and, um, and then Augusto Boal taking that, the basis of that work and that pedagogy and turning it into theater of the oppressed. And that's a huge, you know, guiding, those are huge guiding principles for us as we move through the work, really keeping liberatory education at the center um, and putting the people that we're working with first. Um, and that's what draws me to the work. And how did, you, what kind of drew you to the theater um, and to that kind of like social change work? Yeah, I think I've always been really performative. I actually had a conversation with my dad the other day and he reminded me of a time when I was four and there was an Easter play at, at church. And you have to understand, Alec, I'm, I'm a Southern girl. I'm, I'm in Brooklyn by way of Nashville, um, and I hold true to, the, to, that, to those roots. And, and um, being Southern and, and Baptist was a huge part of that too. And so, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, we were always putting on some kind of Easter pageant or, or play or whatever, you know, and they shove the little kids up there and they give them a card and everybody goes, oh, it's so cute. And then some of them twirl, some of them give their lines and then, you know, some of them just fall down and cry and it's adorable, right? So my dad was ex fully expecting this. I was about four and he was like, oh, it's your first Easter to play, you know, you, you rehearse your lines, but in case you forget, I laminated a card with all of your lines on them. You just go up, speak loud, like you're speaking back to the to the to Miss to Miss Scott in the rafters, and she'll be able to hear you. And um, he said, I looked at him and I went, Daddy, I don't need that. And I walked up to the front, <laughs> right in front of the pulpit with the rest of the kids, and I said my lines nice and loud. And and I think you know. There is something in me that always knew had a had a, a an affinity to the to the performative, um, and arts very much carried me through church and school growing up. Um, you know, I was I was in a choir. Uh, I was always volunteering for a play, um, and it stuck with me, and it really saved my life. I think at a certain point, I started to feel very much on the outside. Um, socially and academically, and theater continued to be an anchor for me um, through high school, through college, and even when I switched my major, um, I, I I went through a lot of different concentrations at school, mm -hmm. and I'm a proud HBCU graduate. But when I got there, I got so many me different messages about what was going to make. Where did you go? Hampton. Okay. In Virginia. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I went to um, VCU, and okay. I know some people that went to Hampton as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We would be over at VCU. And I, you, like, for the longest time, I thought I was going to go to Morehouse when I was growing up. But then, <laughs> as happens, life takes you on different journeys at different times, so. Yes. yes, it does. And it did that with me at Hampton, for sure, especially trying to figure out what I was interested in because I bounced around from psychology to um, broadcast communications and to public relations. And, and I was like, what I, really, what I really want is performance. I want performance theater. You know, and I got some advice that said that wasn't smart to go this route. You know, and ultimately it served me well because I got experience in a lot of different areas, but I always come back to theater. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so grateful that 
um, in a, especially right now in the middle of a pandemic, that I'm, I'm allowed to leverage that, that passion and my interest in people and you know the academic thread that gives me something concrete to be curious about with folks and to share it with them through theater is just is a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, definitely the arts and also specifically theater. It sounds corny sometimes to say it, but it's really true. Like, it saved my life over and over again. Like, it's like when I've been off course, it's kind of when I've drifted away. Um, And it's not that it always has to be theater, but it's like if that, like you said, it's like if that anchor is not there, then it's hard for me to fully be myself, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So you mentioned, I love the word theater practitioner. So I get the performance, um, but I also gather, are there, do you write, do you direct? Like, do you do other things within the theater too? You know theater folks, Alec, we do whatever <laughs> they need us to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I would not dare to call my ex, myself an expert in, in any of those areas. Um, I, I do what's necessary. Um, for the folks that I'm working with at the time. And so maybe that's why theater practitioner feels um, a little more apt for the work, the type of work that I'm doing right now rather than just straight actor. Um, and uh, and I think it, I like that because it, it really does allow me to diversify my skill sets, whatever it is that I'm bringing to a particular project. Like right now I'm working with a, a Brooklyn um, elementary school on a project called the Cultural Immigrant Initiative. And um, you, you might be able to see behind me on my bookshelf, I've got um, a number of different materials that are up here, but one of them that's filling much of the space is puppets. Mm. And, um, and so I'm doing social emotional learning um, and inclusion work through puppetry and role putting, you know, putting my students in, in role. And so that's, the, that's some puppeteering that's in there. Um, there's some improv, certainly. That, that goes into this. And I've been thinking a lot about that, the practice of improv and, and how we as, as actors consider it. Um, I think lay, lay persons can, also, can often uh, misconstrue it as making things up. Yeah. Along the way. And, um, or, or especially as it deals with the practical application of improvisation, that you're unprepared. And um, I, I like to think of it in a completely different way that improvisation as a skill means that you are actually prepared for anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that also reminds me of like the misconception people have. It's like, oh, you're an actor. You could probably lie really well, huh? And it's like, maybe, um, but like really my practice is telling the truth, finding the truth. I'm a terrible liar. <laughs> you know, because it shows. It's I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm not good at performing untruths. And so whatever it is that I'm working on, there is some truth in there. You know, there's got to be. There's a huge part of me in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your favorite part of 2020? And what are you most looking forward to in 2021? Uh, my favorite part of 2020 
has to be the new relationship that I'm in. Nice. I got into a COVID chip, (laughs) which was surprising, you know. How did you meet? Like, did you meet before or did you meet in COVID? Once. We met once before before the great shutdown um, at a mutual friend's birthday party. And I kept trying to figure out why they wouldn't talk to me. I was like, <laughs> like I keep trying to connect with this person. They seem cool. Then I just feel like we're avoiding each other around this bar. This is very strange. And then come to find out it's because they were they were interested and shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I had a phone conversation with a friend whose birthday it was a few months later and said, you know, hey, um, any any word on that? that how, how are the rest of the friends that were at the party? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, oh, this person. Yeah, they asked about you the other day. And I was like, <laughs> and then they took two weeks and didn't hit me up. Weeks they exchanged numbers for us, and then they didn't. The person didn't hit me up, and I was like, "Oh, maybe we are, maybe we read this all wrong. Maybe this all wrong." Um, but they were just they had gotten busy and got back in touch with me. We just kind of started FaceTiming casually, you know. It was more one of those things like, "Oh, we have we have this mutual friend who we deeply care about, and that's enough. There's got to be enough in common around that person to where." You know, this will this will at least be a, a fun series of conversations, and then come to find out, we're from the same state. Um, you know, we know a lot of similar folks, um, and you know, they're they're both they're they're up here in in New York, and commonalities mm-hmm. are just abounding, and it, it became really exciting. I was like, well, that was a little gift I wasn't prepared for in twenty twenty. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm looking most looking forward to that continuing and, and forcing and seeing what that's like in 2021. Um, I've never been in a pandemic relationship before, so <laughs> it's all new and exciting. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the pandemic, I'm actually going to get my first vaccine shot tomorrow. Me too. Really? Uh-huh. Nice. Are you getting Moderna or Pfizer? Do you know? I don't know. It's like whatever the one through the city. Um, yeah, I don't know. I will find out tomorrow. But I was just sort of like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing they're like, they're saying, like, if you can get it, get it. And kind of trying to destigmatize it. Like, just, it's like, I know, like, I understand people who have concerns about it. It's just, I'm concerned that we won't be able to go see live theater for five years if we don't quit playing around. Like, it would be <laughs> Broadway come back. Yeah. <laughs> I it I started off going no, I'm not getting it. Mm-hmm. Because you know I'm black. I got concerns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They haven't, they haven't had a lot of us, you Good know, track record. To do, yeah, they haven't done right by a lot of us in the past, and they, they Like, it's not only have they not done right, like, they, there have been some things designed, yeah, Tuskegee and all that, like, yep. mm-hmm. Actively do black and brown folks harm in the name of scientific and medical research. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stick. It sticks with you. It only takes one of those stories 
to give you the willies about this type of stuff. And it's like, you want to trust, you want to trust medical care, but they, they also admitted that they didn't have a lot of data about how the vaccine, you know, trial behaved in black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be honest with you, I, when it first came out and I, and I got yeah. ability pretty early on as an educator, um, I was not feeling froggy. I was like, I'm not, I'm not leaping at this until I give a few of you yahoos a couple of weeks to see if y'all are going to fall out. And then, then I'll reconsider. But I took the appointment when it came for, for tomorrow because I, I really think that um, us protecting, even on behalf of those who are eligible and can't get it, like uh, some of these elderly folks who are exactly homes and don't have access to the, to the digital tools that allow them to book appointments, some of some of us are doing it on their behalf, mm -hmm. and I think it's I think it really is important now that we do have more data about the vaccines and 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 how they behave and what we can expect um, and and the the cases of people having uh, react reactions that are less than desirable are are so low and usually layered with a multitude of complications that it is feeling much safer to me now to give this a try, especially. Heck, if we're all going to do it as a collective. You know, yeah. Go, yeah. Go get your vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. We're doing it. Um, <laughs> you know? Everybody listening, we're doing it. You know? We're representing. Um, yeah, my wife, she owns a lingerie store. So that was kind of like, you know, she wears masks. She has everybody wear masks. But still. But I will say, I was thinking about it today. It's like, I've been tested a number of times during COVID. Um, I even had to, I had to fly home to Seattle to like take care of my stepdad at one point. I did not want to be on a plane. Um, but that said, like I never, as far as I know, I never got it. Now I've been tested three times. So um, likewise, wearing the masks has helped. Like it does help. It's not a hundred percent, but like, yeah. Like now I'm still going to mask up while, you know, until everybody else isn't, but like take all the things that we can do to stop the spread. Why not? Cut the numbers down. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I flew home to Nashville for the, for the holiday break. And um, I was, I was scared. I was nervous, you know, and <laughs> I guess every shred of care that I have about my outward appearance went out the window because I definitely walked through that that effort with a with a hazmat suit on and a face guard and double mask and um, you know I wasn't I wasn't taking any chances um, because I care I care deeply about my my family and their aging and. Um, I have an aunt who is immunocompromised due to having recently had chemotherapy. And um, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I couldn't deal with the, the, the guilt. Yeah. Around yeah. the idea that like, oh, could I have been the one that accidentally, even if I don't get sick, you know, accidentally have given it to, I don't want that. I don't want to even question that. And that's been the driver for me, like kind of this whole time. Um, and talking to one of my best friends, he's a doctor. And like a year ago, I think he finally, he was with, he was like this and how I was for the longest time about the flu shot. 
was just I was anti flu shot um, for those same reasons that we talked about earlier. Like there are things about it that are troubling and that you sometimes get like, you know, some small symptoms after. So I was just always, well, why am I going to take the, like, why, why don't I just not have any symptoms? Um, but then him telling me that that's what he used to think. And then that it's not about me. It's about preventing elderly people from getting it. So this year was like also the first year that I did the flu shot, just because with everything going on, it's just sort of like, yeah, I don't want to get the thought of getting somebody else sick bothers me because um, I'm pr- and you don't know, but I'm pretty sure like I'm in pretty good health. I've been doing my martial arts. I've been doing my kickboxing. Um, so I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd be OK. That said, you don't know, like, it can, you know, nobody's invincible, nobody's invulnerable, but the thought of getting somebody else sick, that like, that's a no for me. Yeah, I was on a similar train with the flu vaccine too, I'll be completely honest with you. I was like, now why would I pay $35 to go get sick when I can get sick for free? Right, <laughs> like, no right. <laughs> but um, I, a couple of years ago, um, I let I let a friend encourage me to to go and get vaccinated, and they they vaccinated for the wrong strain. Yeah, that year I remember that. And so um, I still I still ended up getting sick, um, but I think I think there's there's um, much more attention now after um, COVID um, and its impact, people being conscious of other folks. And, yeah. Um, Maybe that's the salve that we needed right now because we've gotten pushed, I think, societally to a place where we're so individualistic um, that we have forgotten concern and care, consideration for the collective. And uh, if you know, getting vaccinated is one way that we can offer that level of care, because we know in the United States, disproportionately to you know how much how much income we, what our G- GDP is as a as a, as, a, as an economy as a first world economy, that still our access to healthcare and our general health as a nation still hits the bottom. It hits the bottom of the barrel. Um, and if there is a bit of a, a public awareness, I think a public health awareness around this that gives a shakeup to how we can be more considerate of other people. And, and certainly the pandemic has highlighted the ways in which we aren't and our, our, our federal systems aren't are failing um, are failing um, communities by and large, um, then, you know, maybe there's some utility to all of this that, you know, folks need better access and um, more health education, more practical health education and more transparency from healthcare providers, from organizations that, that track public health like CDC and WHO, um, to, to feel like the information and the care is accessible to them. And so I, I'm, I really laud the, um, our frontline workers and folks who are responsible for figuring out um, mass vaccine distribution the way that they are. I mean, especially in a city like, uh, city like New York, you know, where we're seeing people mobilized um, in a really incredible way to try and get out there and, and get these vaccines to the people that are mm-hmm. them. It's, a, it's an impeccable model. Um, and is it perfect? No, but 
have have we ever been in a pandemic like this before? No. <laughs> um, and so I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing mobile mobile vaccination spots pop up. I'm seeing, you know, in home in home offers and visits, um, stations um, being set up and, and care centers turning themselves into into vaccination hubs and um, and the spirit, the true. I think what the true spirit of of America idealistically should look like um, people helping people um, beyond differences, you know, across languages and in order to support a public health initiative for the greater good. And I wish it, I wish it love, luck and success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been probably the big collective silver lining I hope we take with us is just that like we need each other. And so the whole bootstrapping idea, that's a fine idea as long as you understand that even if you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you're not doing it nor has anybody ever done it alone. That's like the big thing missing from that myth is that, oh, they did it by themselves. No, they didn't like and there's no and that's not taking anything away from somebody it's just no you work hard and basically what an opportunity is is when you've been working at something for a long time and then somebody or some organization who's been working at it longer or for whatever reason has more resources <laughs> available um and and can like use those resources to like help you get to that level. That's what an opportunity is. But without like people giving you those resources and also it can be um, another way as like an artist is if you're an artist with something to share, if you're a singer with music, people listening to you and supporting you also like as fans, like that's helping you those fans aren't there, you don't have that career. So it's just remembering, no matter how you look at it, no matter where the help comes from, you do not get successful without the help and influence of other people, you know? Absolutely, it, it, the phrase that's been kind of staying with me throughout this pandemic is it takes a village. Mm -hmm. Everything takes a village. And you know, you talked about resources, um, I think, one of the things that that phrase often misses when we throw it around in the sense of American mythos is um, the idea that everybody has boots. Right. <laughs> to pull yourself by, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Without boots, long, long time. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it does. It it. I'm, I'm loving the ways that, especially um, some of these emerging generations are innovating and, and using technology to build different ty types of village support. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think there's a huge concern now a days too about that continuing to isolate us and what a relief that people haven't written it off like that because we would be lost without it in the middle of the pandemic. We wouldn't be able to go on living social and collective lives. And, um, and so seeing, see, it's, I think it's how you see it. You know, if you if you look for something wrong, you'll find it. If you look for something right, you'll find it. And um, 
And so especially right now as artists and innovators, um, being able to see the, the possibilities through tech and access to tech um, that, can, that can pull us together as a village, a new kind of village um, for the moment, but, but certainly a village uh, is both useful and inspiring. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, um, what's kind of your vision? How much longer do you have in the program you're in right now? Ooh, bless the Lord. Um, I'm supposed to finish in June, May. Okay. June. Yeah. Congrats ahead of time, you know. <laughs> we'll see, I still gotta write this paper. <laughs> mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's the paper gonna be on, do you know? I it's funny you should ask that, Alec. I just decided to change my thesis question, my central question with my, with my implementation team yesterday. We have been uh, implementing a, a project with uh, a coalition in Brooklyn that does interfaith work. And um, when I started off- What is interfaith work? So it is, it is the blending of uh, rel different religious, diverse religious entities to try and support communities. Um, and with this particular coalition, um, they bring together uh, reform and traditional Jewish populations with Catholic Christians and um, Turkish Muslims, and um, and they do they do work together in order to learn and educate their communities and provide for them. Um, it's been an incredible journey working with them through theater um, to make discoveries about you know what how they can continue to support their communities right now. Um, and I love my, my implementation team, my thesis team um, are also, you know, fellow graduate students of mine at this master's program. And um, we've just been having a ball with them. And, and so our final debrief session is coming this Monday, wish us luck. We'll get feedback from the community that we've built with them. And then I'll go into an intense writing period over the next two and a half months or so and correspond pretty closely with an advisor who um, will help me chapter by chapter as I, as I write this thing. I'm nervous. How long is the thesis again? <laughs> Depends on how you measure length. Um, mm. <laughs> do you measure it in time? Do you measure it in pages? Do you measure it in words? Um, ultimately, well, I will say that right now, my, my first, my, the proposal that I turned in before I began implementation of the project uh, happened in December. And that was with all of the appendices, close to 90 pages, but it's too long. It's way too long. I'm going to have to go in and narrow that down. And, um, and it'll, I, my hope is to get it closer to 30 pages 30 to 40 pages and that will become my chapter one mm -hmm. two additional chapters you know a, a, a work cited at the end and then a bunch of appendices that will accompany the paper so what do you know what the question is yeah so i've changed it i just mm -hmm. recently changed it the first question was what is the role of applied theater in building the empathy necessary to become uh, anti-white supremacist or anti-white supremacist. Um, 
just recently I went on and switched it up to what is the role of applied theater in promoting the empathy building necessary to build collective multicultural anti-racist leadership. Because through the project, I realized, oh, I'm actually answering a different question through this work, mm -hmm. through this participatory research that we're doing. And we were really transparent with our participants the entire time. And so we're exploring a question together. We're exploring an idea. Um, and we want you to help us with that. That's a, yeah. So have you joined Clubhouse yet? I have not. I keep getting invited and I'm like, I don't have room for one more house. I hear that. I hear that. Um, but there have been some interesting conversations about race. Um, there have also been some toxic conversations about race. And I mean, amongst us black folks sometimes um and then but but they're com but it's conversations so i'm with it like we get we have to have conversations and then like i was in another room that was about people with like mixed backgrounds and it it's been on my mind lately and kind of how I always identify myself is, or how I identified myself probably for the past 10 years is black um, and, but I do have a white mom. And, and then digging into that, and there was like an interesting conversation where there was a guy and he's from Pakistan and he's married to a black woman and they're gonna have a child. And so he had a he had a question about kind of how to approach talking about race with that child and him not being black but understanding that the kid kind of will be probably primarily black and then somebody else asked him like oh well why don't you consider yourself black and he was like well as i understand and she's like yeah but to me where you come in the world, like the Middle East, actually you guys have, like everybody has, um, you know, everybody comes from Africa originally, if you wanna go that far, but there are places in the world with like much more proximity. And also like, what is the, like the, so it's a weird thing. Cause on the one hand, like there's this global conversation about race and it's not black and white, but then some, like I was thinking the other day, I'm like, but in a way, like it's not black and white, like it's not black and white, like it's a simple binary thing, but in a way the whole thing seems to in some way stem from anti-black racism and white supremacist ideology. And, and then everything else that's happening actually does kind of exist within that context. Also, because in any other country, in any other place in the world, I mean, I guess Asia, like some places don't have as many black people, but like black people are pretty much everywhere. And there tends to be a thing like even with within like India, there's a whole caste system based on how dark or light you are. So it's like, 
Yeah, and, and that's a whole can of worms. That, so I see you have your work cut out for you writing that. Um, but yeah, but it's uh, it's like thinking about it. It's like the the snake eating its own tail. Like I come to one thing and then it's like, oh, but maybe it is black and white. Like, you know, so. Yeah, I've been considering how the binary can tell a false story mm -hmm. a lot of times. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate Timmy Okun's work um, when, when they talk about um, that as a symptom of white supremacy, the idea of thinking in the binary, mm -hmm. one or the other, it's black or white, it's this or that. And I think in the liminal spaces, um, a lot of people get lost. And um, I think there's, when you start to look around and you realize there's so many of us that are lost, maybe we're not so lost. Maybe we're all found. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe the, maybe the liminal spaces where more, more, um, more love and compassion can happen. And, and it's where more of us are existing right now, you know? Um, Similarly, I identify as black, but I'm not. I'm not stupid to, <laughs> or blind to how how I present, mm -hmm. um, and and how the um, you know the lightness of my skin can be confusing, off-putting for people, um, distracting, and um, and it it's been it's been an interesting journey, particularly being a transplant to New York from the South. And seeing how race plays out differently here, even, even you know, even within within the U.S., you go to different regions, and and you're going to get a completely different socialization or feeling around um, classifying yourself according to race. Yeah, like it's funny you say that. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk a little bit of mess right quick, <laughs> um, but having been in the South and like been around, like there are places, like I don't particularly want to go to Alabama or Mississippi. I still have misgivings about it because of some things that have happened in the past and have happened in the not so, like not so distant past at all, like, like the present we can almost say. Um, but the place where to me, I would, expect the most normalized kind of blatant uh, racism, like just overt is actually not in the South. Like when you were talking about different regions, I was kind of taking an inventory. Um, Cause like I'm from Seattle and Seattle, I think represents the Northern style racism very much. Cause it's like liberal progressive on the one hand and actually, uh, Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, back in the day, so back when I was in high school, I won this um, essay contest for MLK, and I got to go down to the MLK birthday um, in Atlanta at the King Center at Ebenezer. Yeah. Cuomo gave the speech there, so I knew, and I knew the name Cuomo because his dad ran, um, or was being considered to run when Clinton actually ran, and I remember my dad talking about, like, like around that time, like I wish Cuomo, like Perry Cuomo, or I think was his dad's name, Mar Mario Cuomo, that's what it was. Perry Cuomo was a singer. Um, and, and so then like at that 
me and my dad went down there for that, um, for the MLK thing. And he gave a speech talking about how like race in the country, which was, I don't know, like it was like a memorable formative thing on me when I was like 17. And he, he said, basically, you know, there's a misconception that the South was like bad and the North was good and that the South was racist and the North wasn't. And he's like, the thing with the South was like, you had the more overt version. You had Jim Crow, you had obvious segregation. And in the North, you actually had racism with a smile. And so you wouldn't actually be called the names necessarily. Of course you would sometimes. Um, and you wouldn't actually have Jim Crow, but like through economic policies, um, to being denied job opportunities, to being, when you go to the bank, not able to get the loans, not able to buy property in certain areas, segregation exists. It was just racism with a smile. So Seattle definitely can fit in that in a way. Um, and there's a lot of things, I'm, you know, I'm, everywhere there's things you love and hate or whatever. However, <laughs> where I think the most overt and blatant and like normalized racism. And this is like, I haven't spent time up there, but Boston seems <laughs> like, yeah. like where it's just like. I am not trying to go to Boston. <laughs> I'm really not. And I'm from, I'm, I was born in Birmingham. Let me tell myself a bit. I'm, mm -hmm. Alabama. I'm Alabama, okay? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. And we moved to we moved to Asheville, North Carolina when I was two. We moved back to Nashville, Tennessee when I was three, going on four. Um, and I, I I don't venture over to Mississippi often. Uh, it's not you know not a place where I'm wishing. I got good friends there. You know I'll go every once in a while, but I'm not you know I'm not trying to. <laughs> I don't like flirting with danger. Right. <laughs> At least I didn't when I was younger. Um, but yeah, having moved up, having moved up here and really getting embedded in the sense of like how racism plays out in in northern communities, I too very quickly learned, I was like, I am not interested in going to Boston. Mm -hmm. It seemed like some interesting thoughts going on around there. Yeah. Um, you know, we we talk about um, the most some of the most segregated cities in in the nation it surprises people i think often where yeah. cities fall on that list mm-hmm yep interestingly enough um there's a the newest piece that I, that that like i'm developing um there is a theater in Massachusetts that's currently um, taking a look at that play. Um, so, you know, so hey, like if they, <laughs> if they want to talk about generational curses and, you know, explore, then, then yeah, I will take it there. Um, yeah. I'll, go, I'll go to that. I'll go to that in Boston. I got to get, I have, a, I have to have a specific reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a couple of friends who are from there, and actually, um, a good friend of mine who I, I met through my work at CUNY. Um, she's from she's from Boston, and she's an applied theater practitioner too. And <laughs> it's interesting. She is she when when we first started hanging out um, beyond you know just being colleagues, um, she said she was like I. I have a lot of black friends. She's she's white, you know, red hair, um, wonderful. Uh, and she was like, she's like, I have a lot of black friends. And I was like, no. That's a great opener right there. Right. That's I was like, are you saying this, you know, to like make me feel comfortable? I kind of had the the side eye and raised eyebrow to to trust. Uh, but um, <clears throat> after having gotten to know her better and re really like genuinely and then she had a birthday party a pandemic birthday party a few months ago which was actually a blast I popped onto the screen and I I had to take myself off mute and I said I I only know you know I only know my friend that's here and when she told me I have a lot of black friends I did not believe her but I'm looking at the screen and I'm just like am I at the right birthday party <laughs> Like there was like six, you know, like six screens where the where the black folks. And I was like, wow. Okie dokie. You know, there there are people who are interested um in in change making change in their communities and are genuine they're genuine about it. They're real. You know, a lot oftentimes when I see that token white person in those scenarios, they don't present as themselves. They present with something borrowed, which is which is okay, you know, as long as whatever you bar whatever community you borrowed from was also borrowing from you, or you know, that's a symbiotic relationship and mutual, you know, mutuality there, um, and that's accepted. But a lot of times, I can think there can be a lot of assuming going on, assuming a particular cultural practice or presentation. Um, you know, the the whole buzzword now is cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. misappropriation. Um, but she's a genuine person. She is true to herself and she sees people however they wish to be seen. And encountering her, really truly getting to know her over the past five, six years, um, it gives me hope mm -hmm. to go, we can cross over into each other's communities if we see each other as people. Mm -hmm. You know, but we've got to look to the core of folks' humanity. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't I don't understand that when, when folks look at a homeless person or, um, you know, a, a delivery person or, um, or someone who is dealing with health complications because they're obese. I don't understand othering. Right. And going, there's something less than human about that. It can't, mm -hmm. be, it can't be, they exist. We exist. Um, and I think maybe people were to cast aside their fear yeah. of, of, of something different. Not cast aside, that's, a, that's impossible. Fear is with us. If we can be brave enough 
to work through it. It takes bravery. Um, there's still, there's hope in that. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing also is like with, for instance, um, immigration and people talking about build the wall. Um, a lot of the places that you look where people are most anti-immigration don't actually live next to very many immigrants. Like one of the things that I do love about New York is how many people, how many different type of people come here from all over the country and all over the world and are like forced to live together. And I think no matter where you come from, when you live here, it kind of, you have to kind of change your way of thinking. And also when you think of what a New Yorker looks like, what is it? Like it, it can be anything, you know? So that's one of my, I've kind of fallen in love with New York again over the pandemic, you know? Ooh, that's a beautiful thought. Yeah. Also, as far as like you were saying before, how we've handled it, like at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, dang, New York, like everybody's, there's so many people here in close proximity everybody wore their masks, like, like maybe a couple people, but just like anything else in New York, like when people are acting a fool on the subway or anywhere where there's like a large crowd of people, there is a thing about New York where it's like, if somebody is acting stupid in a way that's affecting everybody else, everybody will shut you down. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You'll feel really stupid until you, and, and until you stop acting stupid and then we'll all move on like <laughs> <laughs> we do we, we we take we take we come together in interesting ways yeah <laughs> interesting things unite us and 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 find commonality between us so it is it's a it's a it's a it's a gift because it's you never know what to expect mm -hmm. you know um, and that, in that sense, I totally feel your, your love for the city. Um, and especially right now when kind of everybody has this mutual understanding of, okay, we're all attempting to stay safe. That is the goal <laughs> right now. If, 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 if ever there was a time for that to be the main goal, this is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The community shows up. And, and I think you're right, you know, we have to. We, we are living literally on top of one another. Um, and it's not, there are not too many cities where the majority of folks living in residence are living in communities, not necessarily of their choice per se. Like you may choose your apartment but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have choice over 
the community. You can, you know, generally, obviously, yeah. choose a place where you're looking for an apartment, and that that gives you a sense of it. But you know, glass yeah. <laughs> barriers out the window. You know, barriers out the window. People are mixing and moving in ways in the city um, that that don't often look traditional, like other like other places in the nation. And um, when you encounter your neighbors, mm-hmm. you know, when they aren't necessarily visibly like you you've you've got to make space for the possibility that there is another commonality that unites you if you hope to get along with them and you you want a fruitful neighborhood you want a fruitful community to live in you better find something to get along hey good to see you at the mailbox you like to get your mail at tuesdays on two o'clock too yeah yeah (laughs) yeah what neighborhood are you in by the way I was so curious when I saw the Bushwick Variety Show. I was like, oh, if I'm not a Bushwickian, <laughs> is that all right? Uh, I just recently transplanted from Crown Heights to Prospect Heights. Okay. Yeah, you're Brooklyn. So, you know, that's the that's the barrier of entry. Now, I talk to people all over the world. Um, I mean, primarily New York artists, because that's where, you know, I'm based yeah. here in Bushwick. Um, you said Prospect Heights. I'm in Prospect Heights now. Yeah. Nice. Just down the street from from Grand Army Plaza. Yeah. Um, it's been that was an interesting move too because I also moved from a, a communal living situation to a solo one. And I'm I've, everybody's been asking me like, oh, what do you think of the new apartment? And I'm like, eh, it's awful quiet, <laughs> which is good. You know, it's 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 what I needed uh, in order to to finish up this this master's program and this thesis. Um, but it, you do see a stark difference, you know, between neighborhoods mm-hmm. and, um, and Brooklyn just has its own vibe, flow, feeling. Um, I, I've subletted in Queens, I've, I've subletted in Manhattan, you know, I've, I've, I've been up to the Bronx. Brooklyn's where it's at for me. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, it's funny too. It doesn't take long to like know that. Like when I was moving to New York, I checked out Queens a little bit and thought, I was like, oh yeah, I could see Queens. But I hadn't checked out Brooklyn yet. <laughs> um, and then I remember when I first moved here, it was like, yeah, like I'll live in Brooklyn for now, but you know, eventually maybe Manhattan. And it's like now, no, like I, (laughs) I mean, there was a time when I didn't go to Manhattan. Like there was like, when I was like, when I took a break from acting, it was like, I'll go there if my band is performing somewhere or maybe shopping or something. (laughs) Um, But I prefer if they brought those stores over to Brooklyn, but like, now, like I did re fallen, like I've, I've fallen in love with the city for real again. Um, and I like, like I, up until the pandemic hit, I was going, I was in Manhattan like all the time, but it was nice to always come home. Cause I live in a neighborhood and like, I know people like, you know, there's a lot of people I know, know, and then there's people it's just home like in a way that I feel 
I'm sure there are parts of Manhattan that have that, but like it feels like a lot of Manhattan is much more transient. Like, I mean, touristy for one, mm-hmm. but also, yeah, if you're like in Wall Street or kind of how DC is, like DC has neighborhoods, but then because of terms, like, elected terms and especially presidential administrations like whole that city changes depends on depending on who's in office like you know it's crazy yeah i i love dc i have a a bunch of family down there dc is another interesting city in terms of you know looking at the history of race and segregation yeah in fact um one of the most racist encounters I've had as an adult was on the train at in the DC near the DC station um yeah it's it's uh I was I was I'm not looking for for that kind of transience usually um when it's community I want you know I want a bit of an established you know, so even when I'm entering a new community that I feel is already established, I'm, I'm, I try to be careful, you know, and cognizant about that. Ha- ha- having been a transplant for a long period of time in my life, mm-hmm. I'm very, I'm, I'm very um, used to entering and exiting communities a lot. Um, but be, doing so responsibly is important to me. And, and I have a, a colleague, Shamelia McMean, to thank for attention, intentional focus on that um, mm-hmm. as a practice um, and and I think when we understand that you know communities as they develop and grow even organically they 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 have their own ways of being and the more that you can take care and be observant around that I think the easier time you have you know fitting in yeah and getting along, um, and ultimately, I hope that's that's a that's a common human goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. What is the best place for people to like follow you and keep up with what you're up to? That's a great question. I, I have to say, I've been like social media dark for mm-hmm. <laughs> for a few months trying to stay focused on on this master's program but I I, I do still post every once in a while um and uh so you can you can hit me up on Facebook I think I'm I think I'm Courtney.McClellan3 maybe I have a business card nearby that <laughs> but magically I'm like I know I have the attention span and the memory of a goldfish I like so <laughs> I try to write a lot of things down it helps me remember yeah, I'm Courtney.McClellan3 on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow me at CMarie352. That's C-M-A-R-I-E 352. The same on Insta. Um, and I'm not even going to point you to my website because it's been like four years since, <laughs> since I've even updated it. You know, I, I change focuses a lot um, with my work going from project to project. But um, one of them, uh, the major shifts in my life was moving from the idea of a traditional acting career that I had moved to New York to pursue, um, keeping, keeping room for my dreams to change and going more again, 
towards this applied theater route where I was going to mix theater and education. And, um, and so part of that transformation was going, okay, what are the, the old parts of myself that need to, to die and be sacrificed um, so that I can make room for this new dream? And, um, and so some of my online presence and my social media presence was one of those things that I was like, that is, is, has use and utility for, for, for a certain segment of my life. And I thank that, I thank that, that, that person or the wherewithal to, to seize that opportunity and to use those as tools. And the new person now that I am um, is grateful for leaving that with, with the past me. Um, mm -hmm. so still really present um, in terms of keeping up with people socially. And again, you know, trying to, trying to um, make space for finding my community around ideas and passions that are interesting. <laughs> Hey, buddy. <laughs> we got a friend joining us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can add me on Facebook too. Um, they will. They will. There, like, there is a Facebook profile of Fozzie. Uh, that one. The the Instagram has been more active. The Facebook though exists. So. Tell the people. I'm following. <laughs> Tell the people. How can I find? Uh, Fozzie Bearwolf on Facebook. <laughs> and the many bear wolves on Instagram. Fozzie. And Fozzie's F O Z Z Y. Bear wolf. I'm looking it up now. Because now I'm just interested in what he looks like. <laughs> this is great. Uh, oh, what a cool dude. Yeah, he's, he's pretty Jeffers? great. Jeffers? No, I mean, I call him a mini wolf. Cause he's like 25 pounds. He's super smart. So he's like a German shepherd, just compact, good wow. city size. Um, he's like nine years old now, but he's still, he's got a little bit of gray coming in a little bit. I see his little sophisticated chin. Yeah. Um, see, this is the type of stuff that I will do on social media. This is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the following dogs and babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's how that's how folks can can reach out to me, and um, you know, I'm I'm real direct. I'm, I don't I don't tend to be particularly private. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if if folks want to email me for an opportunity for, for a collaboration, that's totally cool too. And and they can hit me up at at Courtney John McClellan at hotmail.com. Um, I I know people are gonna balk at the hotmail. <laughs> I'm not giving up my first name dot last name. Come on. Yeah, I hear you. That's a good point. Nice. Um, a newer question is, uh, what's your superpower? <laughs> what is my superpower? Can drink wine at lightning speeds? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I think my superpower is love. Um, I got a lot of love for a lot of different things and a lot of different kinds of people. And um, what I'm realizing in the middle of the pandemic is there is always room for more of that. Wherever the love is, that's where I want to be in. And to be completely honest with you, Alec, I've, I've been on a, like, a meandering journey with my faith. I'm trying to figure out what does that look like? 
you know, in um, in kind of a previous life, I had really come head to head with God and been like, nope, you've abandoned this. This is this. This doesn't. This isn't real. Um, everything's a lie, and uh, and walked away from it. But I started in the middle of the pandemic taking the cliche seriously, more seriously. God is love. Realizing, oh, it's not so much a cliche or a metaphor. No, for me, it's it's actuality. It's 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 real. So wherever love is, that's where spirit is. That's where that's where the vibe is. So if that's you know, in the the marriage between you know two of my closest male friends, that's where love is. That's where I see God and see God in that. Um, you know, love is on the street when I see, you know, when I see two unhoused folks sharing a plate that they just got from somewhere. That's where I, that's where I can I add to that. That's where love is. Love is in the eyes of, um, you know, my early childhood students when I go into their classroom and they're, they're sad because they're hungry. They didn't get a, they didn't get a, a pudding cup for breakfast this morning from, from the school lunch cafeteria because they they were late, you know, and and um, and and wherever there's love, that to me is where spirit is. That is the divine. And I'm always surprised at how much more room and capacity that I have for the growth of love. And it feels like a superpower to me because it keeps sustaining me beyond all the odds. Um, waking up on different mornings is easier than, than others. Um, but the thing that usually pushes me out and, and keeps me going is love. I can give more, I can receive more, there's room for me. I love that. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the, your journey with faith, because I, I was going to ask you about that a little bit earlier when you were talking about the interfaith work and yeah, like my journey has kind of been, yeah, I would call it like, you know, the losing my religion thing. Um, but I think the past few years, but definitely in the pandemic, I've been like kind of coming, coming back to it and, and still, and love, I guess, is also how I would articulate, yeah, God, the universe, like there's different ways you try to define this concept, um, this real force, um, but yeah, but I remember a couple of years ago realizing as some things were kind of getting put back together for me and I was working on like my mental and like physical health that there was like a part that I was like not addressing. And I don't think you necessarily need to address it. It's just yeah, these are old, <laughs> deep, deep questions. Um, why are we, why are we here? Like, what's the point of all of this? Where am I going? 
like, what does it matter what I do? And yeah, like a big thing for me is like realizing it matters what everybody does. Like the thing holding us back is us holding ourselves back and not sharing. And so it's like everybody, the more people that share what it is that they have to give, that's how we move like into that paradise that we could be living in. And so it's not just about, like we get caught up on like, well, what impact am I gonna have? And it's like, just know that you will have an impact and that there's also, I dare say like an, a magic that happens like when you start sharing and especially if you can like root it in a place of love. That's the hard part. Cause you're, and then talking about the social media thing, it's like, I'm, I'm at this point right now where I feel for the path I'm on right now, I know there are th- like things that I want to get out a certain, like there are things that I want to share. And as a tool, social media can do that. The problem is social media can also like suck you into this vortex where like it becomes about doing it for the likes, doing it for the money. And I'm not saying, and that's not necessarily bad. It's just, yeah, that fine line of like, how do we stay generous? Like, how do we, how do we not get pulled in? The, and, you know, and it's just a question I think to wrestle with. Yeah. Um, I, I liked what you said about measuring impact and us thinking about, you know, what, what we're gonna leave behind. And it made me think of um, a, a quote from uh, a Middle Eastern author I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but essentially what she said was, um, stop trying to do what the world wants you to do, or what the world, stop trying to do what you think the world needs you to do. Do your passion, mm-hmm. because what the world needs is more passionate people. And um, that, that really hit home with me about, you know, around the idea of bringing more love into my life gave me permission to, 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 again, for my dreams to change and for me to, to follow my dream with my work. Um, yeah, more of that. Yeah. And, and, and certainly if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to live this out loud life, be intentional about it. Find your own personal intention, because what I'm certainly learning in this work is if you don't tell your own story, someone else will tell it for you. Yep. You know, so you, you've got to make sure that your own personal compass is headed north in the direction that you want it to go, no matter what platforms or people you interact with to do it. 
but the more the, the more honest that I can be with myself about what I want, why I why I want it, um, and how I intend to go about it, the more honest I give myself permission to be with other people, and and I think that's what um, I think that's what people are craving. I think people are craving more genuineness, more honesty, more transparency, both in their individual um, lives and and within our collective communities. They want, people want genuine people and genuine mm -hmm. connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's been a thing for me realizing lately the thing about that's what I, that's part, I don't know if that's what drew me to theater. I think similar to you, uh, if you, my dad now calls, like he's, he's calls me an entertainer just because he's like, yeah, you were always finding some way to perform. Like, you know, though, and that's your experience too. But yeah, the thing about it is when we're having these important conversations, sometimes with people who, so it's like I was making fun of Boston, but I do have like empathy. I can under, like, even though I don't, I'm not saying I agree or endorse people who are dug in with like old ideologies or like fear that something's being taken away when we're just trying to like balance things out and make things more egalitarian and actually fair. Um, I, I, I can understand where people are coming from, even though I know also that they're missing, like, like they're not understanding that, like people who feel like their identity is being, it's like, yes, I, like we understand that they're like, everything about the black experience is not about racism either. Like, it's just on top of like our everyday struggle, there's this other layer that especially in this country, um, it's now like, it's permeated around the world. Like it's like spread like a disease, which it is. Um, but yeah, it's this layer that's like in part of every aspect of our system because it's baked in there. Like it, it was from, it was from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to explain that, like that it's not, like with like, when we talk about white privilege and stuff like that, it's like, it's not about guilt. It's not about, it's not about holding you accountable for the system that we were both born in. It's just understanding that there's privilege. And similar to the thing of, we don't get anywhere by ourselves. Also on different measurements, we all have like privilege of some form. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? In different, when you measure things different, different ways. And again, like it can be as simple as I have the ability to talk and hear you. You know what I mean? Like I have the ability to see, like it gets real basic when you think about it. 
Um, and that, yeah, that's a privilege. And it's like, do I need to be punished for that? No, that's not the point, but it's just understanding different people's experiences. Um, and that if you have the capability, if you do have the capability um, and, and the space to be able to do so, what's, what's, what is the harm, truly, what is the harm in, in making space for someone else to have that enabled access to in the way that they need it. Because you, you mentioned the word fair, um, and I have to give credit to Sherry Knott, who was a, a supervisor of mine and, and very much an influencer in, um, in how I entered this, this work, um, who said, fair is not everybody gets the same thing. Mm -hmm. Fair is everybody gets what they need. Mm -hmm. And um, when we think about equity work and, and really trying to establish that, um, I think that's an important part of the puzzle to hold as well as the history of it. And you, you hit on it exactly. You know, if, you, if you're in denial about history, you're gonna have a really hard understand trying to understand, you're gonna have a really hard time trying to understand how equity applies in a current, in a, in the current um, context, mm -hmm. um, because it was the system was never balanced to begin with, you know. And I love the concept from um, Paulo Freire's. Uh, I, I mentioned pedagogy being pressed earlier, but um, it's the idea that um, that inequity and oppression does not just dehumanize the people who are yes. impacted by it. it. It impacts the dehumanizers. Absolutely, yeah. Too. It makes them less than human as well. Um, that you can allow a part of yourself to believe that someone else is less than human and therefore deserves to be controlled is you're letting a part of yourself die. The part of yourself that um, can open up to love from an unlikely place, the part of yourself that can open up to being educated by an unlikely, from an unlikely, you're receiving a, 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 new a new educational lesson from an unlikely source. And you're closing yourself off to parts of your own humanity, parts of your humanity that like you said, needs community, needs a different, you know, needs a wider um, community and, and drives us into this very isolated place where it's just, me, 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 me. Mm -hmm. I'm the sole person who can do X or I'm the savior for, you know, why won't anybody else get it together? I'm the only one that, that, that thinks a particular way. And, and it, it really is, it really is dangerous. And if we can see, if we can see how um, detrimental oppressive situations are for people, I mean, for even forget all of that. If you go down to the very basics, I, I don't understand how people don't see that when you bring up, when you bring up the lowest common denominator, everybody gets brought up with that. Yes. There's, there's, there's nothing lost in making sure we take care of the most vulnerable. Yeah. It's and like- More importantly, enable them to care for themselves in the way that they prefer and wish to. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my yeah, my wife, she's from Amsterdam. And we got married there. And when we went on a honeymoon, we went to Paris. And immediately I was missing Amsterdam because like the first thing you saw in Paris was like these like tent cities. And it's not that I'm like, oh, I don't want to see what, what are those people doing there? It's that there are places where like, there's not really homeless people because the society is structured in a way that like nobody falls through the cracks like that, or it's very hard to. Um, and to me, it's like, don't you like it? And that, yeah, it just changes the environment of everybody. People are laid back in Amsterdam because it's like, and then it's like, they're still very innovative and ambitious and stuff like that. So the argument that like people, that's like a big argument I hear for not building more social problems. Like people will be more lazy. It's like, well, first of all, um, not like, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like not everybody has to be, not everybody has to be super productive. And, and my, some people can like, if people are just fine living an ordinary life, to me, I'm like, good, let them. I want to do some things. Like, like and, but, and, and I'm, I'm also joking. Cause it's like, I also both ways. It's like, if everybody's trying to do their best and like make some crazy things happen, then the ideas are going to get bigger Then I'm going to do better. But also like if a bunch of people want to chill and, you know, just want me to write, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like, it's just, it's not, I just think it would be a better world. Like you're saying, like, if, like I, I have in one of my songs, um, if you diminish some, it's another way. It's not a new thing. I'm just saying it in a different way. But if you diminish some, humanity ain't free. Like the whole thing, it's been said over and over again and kind of the same thing, like God is love. Uh, if some of us aren't free, none of us are free. Mm. It's true. Mm -hmm. Like, because when you allow that to happen, like you said, like you are diminishing yourself. Like you're allowing a human being to not be considered fully human based on X, Y, and Z. But once you do that for any reason, then you can just as easily make other reasons. Exactly. You know? It, it concerns me, I think, to, to see people get to that point, especially when the conversation around money comes into play. When we think about, um, we think about really what is our goal, what are our goals as individuals in living life? Um, if you forget that money is a construct, a societal construct, it's very easy to put that in front of people. And then your goal, um, you equate your goals for success in life around simply how much, how much money you make. And, and really it's a denial of the fact that money was constructed socially for us to 
agree upon how to exchange and barter the goods that we needed as people to in order to meet our basic human needs. That's something that was created. It gets printed every day. It gets burned every day. Um, and and granted, you know, when you, certainly that plays out differently for folks who don't have any. But for folks that do, who are trying to hold on to, mm-hmm. and that 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 means that you can let people go instead. It's a very uh, dangerous place to be in when you're trying to justify who deserves what, you know, and, and the reality is this idea of our worth as productivity is a, is a leftover from a system that we have mostly collectively agreed we don't want to go back to, which is slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, rest. We must, we must rest. We must leave room for ourselves to rest. And, and what I'm finding, because it, be, it can be scary. I'm holding on to, I'm holding on to the concept um, of combating laziness, you know, and, and, and feeling like, oh, people will judge me if I'm not being productive, if I'm not outputting. Rest. We have to rest as people. We are meant to rest. And and some people re- need, need more rest than others. Um, and like you said, this idea about, you know, communal sharing and, and who gets what and what, what, what's equitable. Um, I think people do want to find their, their passion. They do mm-hmm. want to work on something, but they want to be able to work on what's interesting, engaging, and important to them. And when we have a society that's labeling things willy-nilly right and wrong or productive and non-productive, um, it's very easy to fall into those gaps um, that you talked about and end up on the fringes of society. Uh, I heard tell on a, on a podcast, uh, I think it was Weaving Unhoused, um, it, it, that's by a, a homeless man on, on the um, the West Coast streets, and um, and he 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 talked about um, homeless people not necessarily losing their communities or losing their their abilities to to sustain themselves um, because they don't have money. Really, oftentimes people end up in homeless situations because they don't they lost community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you look at places like Amsterdam that, you know, provide communal, oh, no danger here. I don't know how, <laughs> what kind of PG rating here, here none, podcast has socialistic endeavors to provide communal, communal support for those who need it, who need that extra step to try and find what it is their, their life purpose and goal is, um, the better it is for everyone. Yeah. I don't, I don't see how people don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and our healthcare system here was also very much exposed. Like, I don't know what's going to change, but I hope, I know, I hope and I know that things are going to change more than they would have if this hadn't happened. 
like when it did you know what i mean like i i, I know change is coming but this feels like something where it changed everything and this is a great opportunity for us artists who want to make art for change this is like the time of our life like i i sometimes wish i was born in the 60s but then of course also thinking about the realities of of that and the ramifications of that this is that so i'm very excited about what's coming next, but also proactive about what are we gonna make next? What am I gonna do? Like, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have gotten to know you. Um, I'm excited to learn more about the work that you were doing and to know kind of, I had a, you know, I had a sense of where you were coming from but yeah, I'm glad to know you and I look forward to working with you more. Likewise, Alec. Um, and I want to leave with the idea that, you know, making change is, can be small. Um, Adrian Marie Brown, for those of you who are looking for the next pandemic read, go pick up Emergent Strategy. She talks about small is good and, and small is all. And uh, for me, that resonated very deeply in connection with the quote from Nelson Mandela, where he talked about actually, you know, when you're seeking to make change with people, actually the hardest part is to start by changing yourself. Mm -hmm. If, you know, whatever continuum you're on with the change making that you're doing, um, that if the simplest way for you to wake up in the morning is to, to focus that in on yourself for the day, you've done the world an incredible service. Um, and so thank you for the, for the impetus to keep change making through art um, and for the connection with you and, and other like-minded souls to be able to do so. I'm very appreciative. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I usually ask people if they have any parting thoughts, you kind of did it there. But do you have any, any, any more parting thoughts? Because I was, you said emergent strategy. Emergent strategy, yeah. Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and uh, if if parting is is such sweet sorrow, <laughs> um, the next time that I hope we connect, um, it's on something equally as loving as as uh, as this as the environment that you're creating with this podcast. So I can't wait to keep following it and seeing what other personalities um, I get to be in community with through it. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure. And let's keep in touch, you know? Likewise. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. So that was my conversation with the change-making theater practitioner herself, Courtney McClellan. Follow her. Her link to her Instagram will be in the show notes. Also check out Six Shooter, which we both appeared in together. That's where we met. So check that out. Um, I'll also have a link to that in the show notes. And I'll also be sharing that again here soon on Bushwick Variety Show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, like I said, I just got a new computer. So um, one thing I've been failing to do is 
separate the audio tracks um, since I've been switching to Zoom. So I apologize if it sounds like I'm yelling and the other person is talking at a reasonable voice. Hopefully I'll be taking care of that soon. Um, some episodes it hasn't. Uh, I noticed it a little bit in edit in this one. But I think the conversation was great, so I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. And I hope you will come back. I'm going to be here from now on every Monday um, with some additional episodes here and there. But every Monday consistently from here on forward until I change it again. Um, But for now, yes, every Monday here, Bushwick Variety Show. Please subscribe, rate, review, share. And if you have an idea and you want to share your project or your idea, your vision, your art, your story with the world, um, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, social, Alex Evans III, Bushwick Variety Show. I will talk to you soon, and I hope you're doing well, and I can't wait to hear what you're up to. Take care. Peace. Jeffrey.